anything about seeking any fountain of youth or anything like that. And so it, it's questionable whether there's any truth to that tale or not. A couple of other Spaniards, historians, wrote about that uh, a little after the fact, uh, and, and apparently they didn't like Ponce de Leon, and they, they think it may have been politically motivated that they, they were trying to dis, uh, make him disreputable by, by saying that's what he was doing. We, we don't know. Nobody knows for sure what he's doing. I do know that if you check out history books in, in many um, public schools or other history settings, you'll find some that say he was, uh, it was a historical fact that's what he was doing, and others that say they're not sure. And, and again, I don't know which way it is. Uh, what I do know is that there is a desire right? A, a common and a strong desire for some type of magic water or some elixir or some pill or something else that would give a person everlasting youth and strength, right? Uh, people like that idea. It, it seems to me, uh, you know, I, I liked science fiction, still do, uh, read a ton of it as I was growing up, and then like about every other science fiction book is about somehow finding the secret to, to youth and, and long life and all this type of thing going on. Bob Dylan wrote a popular song called Forever Young. Of course, some guy who could actually sing made it popular, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, it, it, it was a popular song. Uh, it hit people's desires, the idea of being forever young. That's appealing. I, I remember uh, as a kid watching a, a movie on TV called Lost Horizon. Anybody watch Lost Horizon? Yeah, there's a couple. I said that in morning service, not one person. I'm like, what? <laughs> Classic movie. You should watch it. it, it it's, the, uh, it's the story of uh, Shangri-La, right? This, this uh, mythical uh, place hidden in, in, in the Himalayan mountains. And everybody who found the place, which as it turns out is really hard to do, apparently it's nearly impossible to find it, but if you find it and you stay there, then y you will enjoy supernaturally long and healthy life. You see, it, it just seems like there's this universal interest in the idea of staying young and healthy, uh, of being able to enjoy uh, th this ongoing life with, with vim and vigor without the fear of growing old and weak and, and feeble, let alone without the fear of dying. And you know, the fountain of youth, it's, it's not just an American thing, right? There, there are legends and stories of this same type of thing all around the world in, in, in most countries and, and, and uh, cultures. Uh, people have wanted this uh, idea, the yearning for eternal health and youthfulness is, is deeply embedded in the psyche uh, of, of humans. And, and I believe I know why that is. It's because that's what God created us for. Deep within our souls is the remnant of knowledge uh, of what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. You know, that, that cycle of, of birth and life and then growing old and, and dying, it, it is so uh, common to us. It's, it's been repeated for so many generations that now, you know, we understand and, and we, we get that that's normal, but deep down inside, in our hearts, there's this glimmer of a knowledge that we, we were actually made for something more. And I, I believe that that is 
at least in part, what, what King Solomon was getting at when he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes and, and he said about God, he, that's God, has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end, just meaning you're not going to know everything that God's doing. But, but what God has done is set eternity in our hearts. He's, he's implanted that idea of, of eternity and life forever. That, that's there by God's design. And, and, and it's actually a remnant, I believe, of how and why God originally created us. He, he made mankind with the possibility for and the intention of living forever. And he created us to live in relationship with him, which then brings us to our topic and, and uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the request this morning was uh, about the tree of life, and so that's what we, we want to have our focus on. But its story is intertwined with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so we do need to look a little bit at both of them. But, but I think as we get started, there's, there's first a, an important question that we need to look at and, and try to answer, and that was, was the tree of life a, a literal, physical, real tree or was it just symbolic? And, and as you can imagine, there have been and still are people that, you know, come down on, on both sides of this debate uh, back and forth all through history. And I, I don't want to spend really a, a great deal of time uh, going back and forth and looking at that. And so I'm just, I just want to cut to the chase and say, I believe that it was both. Let me tell you how it works. I believe that it was a real, literal, physical, knock-on-wood tree standing there in the middle of a real, physical Garden of Eden that God had created. As you read through Genesis chapter 2, it talks about all the things that God created. And it's obvious to us that the light and the dirt and the water and the fish and the birds and the animals and plants and everything else, those were real literal things, right? Because we can see them, we experience them here and now. And there would be no reason, no logical reason to suddenly switch from real literal physical to metaphorical or symbolic right in the middle of a, a paragraph. In fact, right in the middle of a sentence. And, 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 and therefore, I believe that these were, were real trees, not merely symbolic. Just because we can no longer see them, touch them, feel them, or understand fully exactly what they were or how they worked does not mean they weren't real. God planted and cultivated into a beautiful garden all these fruit trees. Apples and pears and peaches and mangoes and you name it, right? They're all real trees with real fruit 
that would be real food for Adam and Eve. And the same would be true for both the tree of life and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice how the good and evil tree is, is described just a little bit later in Genesis 3.6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, right? Good for food. I mean, that means it had real fruit on it, uh, something she could pull and put in her hand and eat. And it was appealing. It looked good to the eyes. And, and we're told the tree of life also was loaded with fruit. Now, it doesn't say specifically, but one would also guess it was an appealing tree, that it, that it looked good. And I believe that both of these trees were special creations of God. That is, that they are not a tree that we currently see or have here on earth. The forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve ate was not an apple, despite whatever pictures you may have seen, right? Uh, they didn't have any Polaroids back then. Nobody knows what the, the fruit was, but I, I believe it was not anything that's current. It was its own particular fruit. And the same would be true for the tree of life. They had their own fruit, and they were literal and real, and yet they each had a purpose. And it was in that purpose that we find their symbolic meaning. So let's think first of the tree of good of evil. I do not believe that there was anything inherent or special or magical uh, quality in the fruit itself that would open their eyes when they ate it and make them knowledgeable of good and evil. Instead, it was the act of defiance and disobedience towards God in taking for themselves what he had forbidden. Prior to that, think about it this way, prior to that act, prior to that moment, everything that Adam and Eve knew was good. That is all they knew. They knew nothing but good. God said multiple times his creation was good and they enjoyed his creation. Their relationship with God was good. It was unhindered. It was unbroken. He would come to the garden and walk and talk with them. Their relationship with each other was pure and good. Everything, all they knew was good. And it was only in disobeying God that they came to understand or know or experience what was evil, what was wrong, what was forbidden. They immediately felt guilt and deep shame, and they wanted to hide. And that's a story we all have as well, isn't it? I mean, not exactly like Adam and Eve, because we don't start off good and innocent as they did. We're born with sinful natures. Our, our, our being is corrupted from the, the very beginning. But we've all had that experience of guilt and shame from making choices in defiance to God's good and perfect will. Like Eve, we sometimes see what is forbidden, but we choose to reach out and grab it for ourselves anyway. And just like her, 
we always have our reasons for doing whatever it is we did, our excuses, our, our justifications. You know, we didn't look at all of that verse in Genesis 3, uh, 6 earlier. Here's the whole verse. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. See, that, that's, that's the hidden lie of sin, of evil, of doing wrong, right? It promises to give you something that is desirable in your eyes. Eve thought she would gain wisdom. It's going to make me wise. And, and the truth is, we all think we're going to gain something from our sin. It, it's desirable for one reason or another. But the truth is, that that reason always ends up being a lie and leading to hurt and destruction. So see, the, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and, and evil was a real tree. But what it symbolized was obedience or disobedience. Would they follow God's command or would they not? And it was in breaking that command that their eyes were opened to the reality they had experienced good before, now they had evil. In a similar way, I believe the, the tree of life is a literal, material, physical tree that bore real fruit. But again, I don't believe there was anything inherent in the fruit itself that gave eternal life. It's not like it was some type of edible fountain uh, of youth, you know, right? Or, or drinking from the, the Holy Grail, if you saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know. It, it's not going to give you a uh, long life just from eating the fruit. I believe that, th that the physical fruit symbolized the blessing of eternal life, which God himself would give and would have provided for Adam and Eve had they passed the test and stayed obedient to him. Eternal life comes from God, not from eating a certain fruit. And, and, I, and I think that that idea is confirmed by the rest of what we see of the tree of life uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, right, uh, then we understand there was consequences, right? And, and and uh, part of the consequences were that instead of now being able to, to have their sustenance freely given from God, their daily bread just handed to them from God, right? Now, he says, they would have to survive by the sweat of their brow. You know, childbirth would be a very painful event. Discord and conflict would, would now mar uh, the, the human relationships and the relationship with God, which was perfect in unity was now broken. Genesis 3.22 and following says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stretched he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It, again, it's symbolic of separation, of brokenness from God. God would not 
give them that eternal life now because of that disobedience. Disobedience ended any possibility of, of eternal life for Adam and Eve uh, in that situation. And God, God barred them from that tree of life. That, that relationship with God was, was broken. And now instead of never-ending life, they would experience death. And, and we understand biblically there was immediately spiritual death, that brokenness, that separation from God was immediate, and it also brought about the beginnings and the start of physical death as well. Everything they thought that they were going to gain by, by doing their own thing and, and, and doing things their own way ended up bringing pain and disaster. Instead of the good things that sin had promised, they were now experiencing brokenness and emptiness. And maybe, maybe you can identify with that. Actually, there's no maybe about it, is it? We can all identify with that. There is not one person sitting in this room, or standing for that matter, who has not acted in defiance to God. There's not one person here who has not chosen the wrong path, done the wrong thing, gone the wrong way. All of us, every single one of us here is guilty. And sometimes, you know what? We think we are alone in our sin. We believe that nobody else has been as stupid as we are or has struggled like we have struggled. But the truth is, we've all played the fool. We've all broken and defied God. Adam and Eve walked out of that garden, barred from the tree of life. An angel with a flaming sword guarded it so that the entrance could not be found by Adam and Eve or any of their descendants. None could enter. And you know, if that was the end of the story, it would be a sad story indeed. Sad for Adam and Eve. Sad for us. But fortunately, that's not the end. You see, the tree of life shows up again, but not until the end of the Bible. So now you can flip to the very last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the next time it shows up is Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, where the apostle John is writing, and he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Two, two things that I want you to notice from that, two, two facts that come out of that particular verse that, that we need to make sure we understand. The first is, is that the tree of life has been transplanted from the Garden of Eden to the paradise of God. A paradise is another uh, name for heaven where God dwells. And by the way, the word paradise actually literally means garden, so maybe God took the whole Garden of Eden, I don't know. Uh, but, but this paradise is described a bit more for us in detail in the book of Revelation when John is talking about the new Jerusalem, the city that, that God is making and, and, and the throne of God is in it. And he writes, Then he showed me a river of life, uh, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of 
its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So, so now, you see, the tree of life is, is, is in heaven. Um, and, and everybody wants to know, well, when did God take it to heaven? And where's the Garden of Eden now? And all this kind of stuff. And our answer to that is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. So it's just pure speculation. But if I was going to speculate, I would say, did it right before Noah's flood. Just a thought. Anyways. The second fact, so the, the fact, forget the speculation. The fact is the tree of life is now in heaven. The second fact I want you to notice is that God made a way. This is the, this is the crucial fact. God made a way so that people could once again have access to the tree of life. He, he says that that fruit will be given to those who overcome. Well, overcoming is not a new concept in the Bible. It's been talked about several times. So our question is, well, who, who are the overcomers? How can we identify them? And you can go to other scriptures. In fact, we'll just go to one that helps us identify who the overcomers are. This is also from the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. John, in 1 John 5, 4, he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So, so the overcomers are who? You know, we, we tend to think of overcomers, uh, those are those super saints, right? Those, those are those mega Christians, those ones who have everything all together, who, who are always at the top of their game, who, uh, you know, no, that's not what the Bible says, right? The overcomer is anybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have been born of God, it says. Those who have been born of God. Well, well who's been born of God. Well, Jesus had that conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, right? And when he asked how a person could be born again, that is, born of God, Jesus told him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, what? Eternal life. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ is the overcomer, the one who's been born of God. Whoever, no matter how you've messed up, no matter what you've done, no matter what your journey, no matter what your tra uh, trail in life, whoever believes. Uh, that's an amazing Verse and, and according to Revelation 2 7, you will be granted the right to eat from the tree of life. You notice though well, that, that eternal life does not come from the tree, right? It comes from Jesus Christ. The tree of life is symbolic of having gained that eternal life through faith in Jesus. It works kind of the same way that communion works for us today, right? Uh, communion is a physical, tangible reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Communion doesn't save you. Communion doesn't make you holy. Communion doesn't change you. But what it does is make you remember what you have received through faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe 
that the tree of life acts in the same way. And I think that's confirmed to us in Revelation twenty two fourteen, where it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gate into the city. Washing your robes, again, that's a, 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 a repeated term in, in Scripture, and it's a poetic way of, of saying those who have had their sins forgiven through grace given by Jesus Christ. Anybody in here have any sin that they need to have forgiven? Am I the only one? John 3.16. Let's go back to it, right? Whoever. That's the invitation that God gives. We can have our robes washed, which again, the poetic way of saying your life is cleansed. You are forgiven. Your heart is made new. You are a new creation. So what's your story in relation to the tree of life? Has anybody noticed that it's not the Garden of Eden out there? By virtue of being descendants of Adam and Eve and by our own sin, we've all been kicked out of the Garden. And like Adam and Eve, we've chosen to sin. Thanks to them, we're born with sinful nature, but we also choose to sin. And we usually choose to sin because in the moment, like Eve, it seems desirable. And just like he did to Eve, Satan promises us that somehow this sin is going to be to your advantage. That's what he promised Eve, right? This is going to be to your advantage. But the truth is, sin always brings death, just as God said. It brings pain and destruction. It brings hopelessness and despair brings emptiness and futility and finally it brings death but god in his mercy provided the means to real life to abundant life to eternal life and that life comes through jesus christ his son and when you accept jesus christ you will be granted the right to eat of the tree of life in eternity for all time, washed clean and made new. Oh man, what, what, what could be a better offer than that? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you have provided the means for salvation. That we, that we can enjoy the fruits of eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. God, your promise is that your grace is greater than all of our sin. Therefore, you have promised to wash clean our sin, to remove our guilt, and to take care of our shame 
so that it no longer plagues us. Father, we are so grateful for that. God, may we live each day in the assurance of your forgiveness so that we can walk with confidence, that we can tell people our story, knowing that we've failed, but we're forgiven. And that because of that, we're made right with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.